Uh, so today is about <clears throat> our Savior and how he is not like us. And I open with Apple. So we're going to be looking at the, the fall. Um, but not for that reason. It's actually coincidental. I actually wanted to eat this earlier, but I was like, man, this would be a good open. So anyway, I'll eat it right after. But if an apple or any fruit, if it goes bad, if it goes rotten, what can you do to restore it to its freshness? Is there some chemical process? I mean, oh, we have a lot of technology. Is there some kind of physical thing we can do, a machine, uh, something? But no, uh, once even you get a brown spot or it rots, it's irreparable. Uh, um, but it's still an apple. Right? We call it an apple. Now, when we fell, in a way, we became rotten. When Adam fell, and what I mean by that is he's still a man, but he's completely different. Uh, Adam changes. His nature changes. So outwardly, he looked the same, except for the expression on his face, which was filled with shame. But um, like the change that happens to a rotten apple, it there's nothing that Adam could do. There's nothing that anybody could do to restore him to what he was. He completely changed. And that's what we're going to look at today. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Let's see uh, first there. We'll go to Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> and let's open up in prayer and be thankful for God's grace upon us because he did change us. Uh, God did and performed and accomplished the only way in which we could be changed in a, in a miraculous and marvelous way, which is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, the way God did this was to have our Savior born into this world, um, born in humility. And that is so important for us when we learn. So as we pray, if there's anything on our heart that would make us proud or distracted, put all those things aside, give them to God in prayer so that you can focus on his word. So with that, let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your grace. We thank you that through you we have eternal life through Christ our Lord. That you have given him as a gift. He's born into this world, a gift to the whole human race. We thank you for all that you have revealed about him through your word. We thank you for this gospel that we're studying in Matthew. And for the precious word, Father, that brings light to our hearts so that we will see and know. And we pray, Father, that the whole world would see and know. Perhaps this year, this Christmas, that someone, I know there will be many, but someone that we even know and love who we've been praying for to see the light of the gospel would see that this time, this year. And we ask, Father, that through us that light would shine. But, of course, for that to happen, we have to live as you would have us live. So we explore in your word for that very thing. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would guide and enlighten us. In Christ's name, amen. So Matthew 1 and 2 
uh, shows us many things. It's a really the origin of the Lord as Matthew depicts it. As we've seen in Matthew 1 and 2, there's five instances of Old Testament prophecy. And so we see in Matthew 1 and 2 that our Lord Jesus fulfills the history of Israel. Uh, Israel, See, there's a story to Israel, and Israel just keeps failing. And there's a story to Christ that parallels the story to Israel, and he succeeds. So he becomes this fulfiller of Israel. And as we see in Isaiah, the prophet says that he is Israel. Of course, in a metaphorical way. Um, And so through Christ is life. Uh, It's not only Israel who who he's the fulfillment of. He's the fulfillment of the whole story of the Bible. And... That means we're included. We've seen this as well. That God was going to bring salvation, did bring salvation to the Gentiles, and here we are as Gentiles, and called and saved by him, and therefore he not only um, <clears throat> is the fulfiller of Israel, but the fulfiller of all of us, because all of us have failed. All of us are born in sin. All of us have sinned personally. All of us have been slaves to sin. And all of us have been born insignificantly and with no hope. And he came for us as much as he did for anybody, for all mankind. And so what does this mean? When you look at this more carefully, you see in Christ that in him, and this is a phrase that the Bible uses over and over, which has this implication of position. You know, if you know the, the phrase in Christ or in him for believers, it's used over and over, especially by Paul. But we're not physically in him. But in a way, it states it as if we are. So there's some kind of connection between us and Christ that is, well, we don't really know the full of it. But we know it to be true. We're in him. And he indwells us, though we don't feel it. You're not going to see him on an x-ray, but he's there. And so this shows us in many ways that every person has to give their entire lives to him. Their entire life has to be given to him. Every aspect of it. Because to say that some aspect of your life is yours and not his is a lie. You didn't create you. You didn't create that aspect of your life. Did you give yourself the ability to reason? Did you give yourself the ability to want? Did you give yourself the ability to desire? None of us have. So to hold back from God anything, and particularly now, now that Christ comes into the world, there's the Son of God, there's the Son of David, there's the Savior of the world, There's the one that was born, the only one born by a virgin. He's not born in sin like we are. He's not in Adam. And so in him is life. Why do we need him to do this for us? Well, a lot of people think that Jesus is just a moral teacher and he came with a better way. And so if we follow that way at least enough of us follow that way, we'll create the kingdom of God here on earth. What a stupid theory. As if we could follow him first off. We can't even follow people that are less than him. But, you know, who, how in the world would we change our world just because we behave a little better? As if we would. 
We need him to do something more than make us nicer or a little calmer or a little less sinful. (laughs) We need him to completely change us because like the apple that goes bad, we can't change ourselves. And we have to be remade. And he's not going to make us the apple again. He makes us, because we don't go to the Garden of Eden. When he remakes us, he makes us in his image. And he makes us citizens of heaven, not citizens of Eden. So this question is often answered by the truth that the crown cannot come without the cross. That's very true. The cross must come first. And it's at the cross, which is vital But not just the cross, as we'll see as we close, the resurrection of Christ is absolutely vital for us to live, to truly be alive. And what I mean by that is not just, we can, for the sake of this lesson, we can say going back to the Garden of Eden and restoring or being restored into our relationship with God. So, what we're looking at today is... Not, we're not even going to turn to Matthew. But in light of Matthew 1 and 2, the virgin birth of our Lord, uh, the fact that he fulfills all things in Israel, that Israel failed. He fulfills all things for us that we failed. And what is our problem? Our problem is the fall. The fall of man in Adam. In Adam all die. All right? It's not just stated in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. It's stated multiple times. The reason why we are what we are is because we're in Adam. According to the doctrine of the fall of man, or lapse, that's where we get the word lapsarianism from. This is a Latin term for fall. Man is now a horror. And I do mean that. Horror to God. Now, because God has graciously dealt with sin. I think a lot of people, and I know this, a lot of people in the human race think God is, you know, he's kind of angry at sin, but he's, he's not really all that upset about it. But he absolutely loathes it. It is, has nothing to do with him. I don't think any of us can really comprehend the absolute purity of his holiness and how far away we are from it. In terms of our behavior, I mean. And... Um, But what Christ has made us to be is absolutely pure just like it because of what he's done for us at Calvary at the cross. Man is a horror. Man is ill-adapted to live in planet Earth. Look at our world. What's happened next with the war in the Middle East? What happened before then? What's going to happen later? It's war. It's conflict. It's hatred. It's murder. It's stealing. it's, It's greed. Now, why, does, why is Washington, D.C. at a huge place of malfunction? Purely greed. And why is there greed? Every one of those people up there are fallen. And I, you know, I might say, well, I behave better than them. Perhaps I do. But am I as fallen as they are? The Bible says I absolutely am. Am I still a sinner as a believer? The Bible says I absolutely am. Will there come a time where I'll be sinless as a believer in this world? The Bible says no, you will not. 
Everything that we are that is good has come through Christ. Look at Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. That word keep it actually has the connotation, the Hebrew word of guarding it. And so it's not, please know that Adam wasn't given like nothing to do but sit on his perfect rump and, you know, do nothing and sip perfect cocktails or whatever people would like to imagine him doing. But um, he was. He was to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice the word surely. It's actually a doubling of the Hebrew word for death. It emphasizes it. Some people translate it, dying you will die, or dying you'll die. And it refers to the fact that if they eat of it, which they did, they would die spiritually and be depraved or live in depravity. And that would be followed by physical death. And I put not under your control, because one of the things we're going to see today is that what Adam and Eve lose is control. They lose control. And when is death going to come? None of us control it. I mean, and I'm going to leave suicide aside. That's a, that's, that has no application here. Um, but when it comes to our death, none of us control it. We lose all control of everything, physically, mentally. And nothing, spiritually. We have nothing if they eat. And they did. So, you know, it, why, we know that they didn't die when they ate. So can a person be physically alive and spiritually dead? The answer is absolutely yes. Go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1. One and two, can a person be physically alive and spiritually dead? In fact, we all are born into this world in this very way. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You were dead in your, two words for sin here, they're synonymous terms, trespasses and sins. It's Paul emphasizing it, the sinfulness, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And he's talking to them as believers, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice the title for us, Sons of Disobedience. Notice the prince of the power of the air is Satan, because of our fall, has actual power over us. We see in 2 Corinthians 4 that he can blind us. And he, he can't control us like puppets, but we find in the scripture that he has a certain power over us, and we think to ourselves, well, what in the world happened? And again, it's the fall. In the developed doctrine, then, it is claimed that man, as God made him, was completely good and completely happy in the garden, and he disobeyed God and became what we now see. However, this is not the view of science, is it? In science, man long ago was some kind of brute living in a cave, scribbling on the walls, and being rather brutish, and that he evolved. Um, this idea of a savage existence 
is so ridiculous, and not just because scientifically it's, it's, a, it's a very horrible theory. It's been proven to be wrong, although you won't hear that in any mainstream uh, places. But, uh, you know, what we have is a fall of a man who disobeys. And so to disobey that pre, presupposes that there's a law to disobey. If you have the first, let's say you have the first family of brutes, some Cro-Magnon family over there in a cave. Have they come up with a law by which they themselves are accountable? In other words, did they as a group, a bunch of cavemen, say, all right, let's make a law. And then if anyone violates this law, they're falling creatures? How would they even come up with such a law? And how would it be ratified as something that was actually had the authority to make anyone a fallen creature. But by means of the fall, we have to have a law that we can break, and therefore we have to have a lawgiver. The fall is an act of disobedience towards God. It was not a sin committed. It wasn't Adam committing a sin against Eve, or vice versa. It wasn't a social sin. It wasn't a sin against your neighbor. It was a sin against God. A sin against his law. The fall, therefore, made us wholly different beings. And this is important to understand. As a fallen creature, man, it's not like, well, he's kind of worse than he should be. No, he's not what he should be. A fallen human being is not what they should be. They have been completely changed. Did God create fallen man? No. We created fallen man through sin. We sinned ourselves into existence. So Adam became a wholly different being than the one that God created. It's the same with Satan at his fall, although we know very little about that. But Satan, we would assume, became a completely different creature. So look at go to Romans 3. And here we have, a, and the question might arise, though we're not going to really spend time in it today, is the sins, actual personal sins, the act of sin versus the nature of sin. And what we're looking at today, we're focusing on, is the nature of sin. What we're born with. Uh, You're still a sinner if you're not sinning right now because of a nature. Now, as believers, we have a new nature. But today we're looking at what is the fall and what has it done to us. And this is why we need Jesus to come into this world, the Son of God to come into this world by a virgin birth. And to be all that we will see him to be in the Gospel of Matthew. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was an immediate shame. They discovered that they were naked. Clothes represented the righteousness of God, and they tried to clothe themselves, and it didn't work. They're still shamed. And so they tried their own righteousness in a way. But then God clothes them. And for God to clothe them, he actually commits a blood sacrifice. He kills an animal. He clothes it. Very important to know that they're clothed with animal skins. And in Genesis 4, and those animal skins represent the blood sacrifice, which God instructed them to bring to him as a sacrifice from that point on. 
So look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. Notice how many. All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Notice it's a gift. Notice it's by grace. And notice that it is, not in this exact passage, but it is by faith in this immediate passage. Grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. There's my word faith that I was looking for. So, uh, through his blood, it's a blood sacrifice. Two things to note here, uh, which we could, you know, look all over Romans for this. It's everywhere here. But uh, all have sinned, all fall short, but all are justified as a gift. And Paul will expand upon this in Romans in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, all the way through to chapter 8. So, the whole race of mankind is depraved. Born with a sin nature. The sin nature is worse than we think it is. Matthew points this out without having to actually directly state it. Right? He gives us Jesus' genealogy. Who are the good people in that genealogy? Even the ones that we might say, hey, there's a good king. Matthew points out, like for instance with David, that he makes it clear in his genealogy emphasizing the fact that David committed adultery and murdered Uriah. There's Herod in the narrative of Matthew 1 and 2. Herod, who, who decides to have children murdered because he's a paranoid jerk. As God defines good, is there good in any man? And God says no. All mankind are born in Adam, born guilty, born sinners, born disobedient children, these are all t- titles for us given in the New Testament, enemies of God, alienated from God. And so as we look now further or deeper at the fall, we see something else. First off, you know, where was their temptation from? Nothing outside of themselves. You know, they, I guess they, they do get tempted by Satan, but, you know, it, it's words that he's trying to convince them of something that is a lie, but, you know, for them to take and to eat, to disobey God, they need something not so much outside of themselves, but something inside of themselves. Uh, And this turns to pride. The fall gave every person a nature of pride. Uh, You know, what's the temptation that Satan throws out there? God is doesn't want you to know good and evil because if you did, you'd be like him. So you'd be God's. And, you know, to, to anyone else, to someone who doesn't have a self-consciousness, to someone who doesn't have an I, I don't mean an E-Y-E, I mean the I, a me, an I, an ego, then that temptation means nothing to me. You could be God. If I don't know myself as even an individual, that means nothing to me. But if I have an I, a self-consciousness, an ego, well, being God sounds pretty good. The wonder We wonder, therefore, how perfect humans in a perfect environment could sin. But the act of self-will 
does not need a temptation. It's self-will. It needs an I, meaning a self-consciousness. We know also that this sin, whatever it was, has to be very heinous because of the consequences, the consequences of human history, the consequences that we see, which are so very terrible. It, all ha- it also has to be something that's free from, you know, we have the outward temptation of the serpent, but it's not, they're in a perfect environment. They're in perfect bodies in a perfect environment. We, on the other hand, are surrounded in a fallen world. We're surrounded by a fallen world. We're tempted all the time. But they were not. And so what they did was they turned from God to self. This is so important for us because even as believers, we're in these fleshly bodies. We're in a body that's tainted with sin, a sin nature. And all of us, are going to have to deal with pride. The most proud person in the world is the one who doesn't think they're proud. We have to be aware of it. We have to know right now in your heart, you've either been proud of not too long ago, or you're being proud now, or you will be proud soon. And as we look a little further at this and define, just quickly in the time that we have to define what pride is, you'll see that it is exactly you. And it must be overcome. Uh, self-love is what it is. This, this is all we need in this world to make it as bad as it is, is self-love, self-desire. Self-love and self-desire have created horrible conditions on earth. And it doesn't need an outside push. All it needs is the knowledge of that I am a me. That's all it needs. I'm an individual. Adam and Eve had to self-surrender to God in the garden. He gives them the option, as we read in Genesis 2, don't eat of that tree. They have to, and I'm sure it wasn't hard to do, being as perfect as they were, They have to submit to God. They have to self-surrender to his will. And they did for a certain amount of time. But this need of self-surrender actually becomes the weak spot of the creation. It's a risk that God took. He could have made us that. We didn't have this. But he makes us in his image. And he gives us this ability to self-surrender or not. And then Satan exposes this. The frailty of man's perfect self-consciousness is exposed by Satan. And then pride becomes the fall of every individual life. And each day of each individual life, the basic sin behind all particular sins. You can trace all sin right to it. I want that. I don't want that. I don't want to do that. I want to make you bow to me. I judge you. Right? There's I, I, I. We could just go through the whole list if we thought up every sin that there was. At this very moment, either you or I are committing it or going to commit it. Or we're repenting of 
having been proud. I, often we're don't even, not even aware of it. Most people in the human race are not aware at all. That's why this place is crazy. We wake up in the morning, and if you do this, I pray before I get out of bed. We lay our whole day at God's feet, and by the time we get to the bathroom to shave, the whole day has become about us. By the time we finish our first cup of coffee, we've already started to plan about how this day is ours. Is this day yours, or is it his? Say, ah, oh, come on, Pastor, you're getting a little too picky there, aren't you? Am I? I know I am not. Not one day is yours. Not one corner of this universe is yours. Nowhere can you mark out and say, God, this is mine. Please go away. No part of your body is yours. Your brain is yours. Your thoughts, your reasons are yours. They have all been given to us. Because we have a consciousness and we have a self-consciousness, sorry, because we have a conscience and we have a self-consciousness, in our fallen state we think we own. And even as, belie- as believers we have this whole system of thinking of that we own or that's mine it has to be worked out. And boy does it take a long time. So you have to be very careful. If you start to work this out, this, you start to become aware of this, you will become humble quick. Do not judge others who do not see it yet. If you see it. So pride is the fall of every individual life. I love how, so we take the day, we say, Lord, this is your day. This is the day the Lord has made, right? Maybe even sing it a little. And then before you even leave the house, the day is yours. And then, But you pay out to God, out of your own pocket, a little tribute. Say, you know what, God, I'm going to give you a little Bible study today. Don't worry. I might even pray to you a little. I've given you my payment, and the rest of the day is mine. Is it? It is not. Before the fall, Adam and the woman did not spend one moment like that. We're so used to it, we think it's normal. Which, in our world, it is. And in our uh, these bodies, it is. And look, there's no condemnation here, not for me. I, I <laughs> Pride in me, I don't even know how big it is. I know I have it. But this is so that all of us can start, as we see here in this gospel, right? What, what are we going to learn in this gospel? The Lord Jesus Christ. And if, when you learn more about him, he increases and you decrease. And that's what I want to see for us all. Do you remember when you started a new job? Say when you were young. My first real job was at Duracell when I was a college grad. It was magic, man, because that was it was rich. They had money, had an office. It was wonderful. I thought all jobs were going to be like that, funny enough. It was probably the best job I ever had outside of this one. And I thought, you know, I was right out of college. I thought, you know, all places were like that. Anyway. You're, you know, when you begin that job and you're kind of like what? You defer to others. You're humble. You uh, kind of have a servant attitude because you're new. It's first job. You don't really know how to do everything. But then after about a month or so, you learn the ropes. 
And your whole attitude changes. Get your stuff off of my desk. You parked in my spot. Whatever, right? Like you become this what? Well, we do it to everything that we come across. At the beginning, we're kind of new at it. Remember, uh, God says to Israel, when you were a youth, you obeyed me. He talks to them like they're a child. I just read this in Jeremiah, right early. I think it's in Jeremiah chapter 2. God says, I remember when you were a youth and you followed me through the wilderness. How lovely. But then after a while, you got used to me. After a while, you get used to the job. And then you just protest and demand your rights. You fall in love. And you become a servant to the one that you love. And by the time the honeymoon comes, that person becomes the object of your pleasure or what you want. You deferred to them. You were a servant to them. Because you were in love, it was magical. And then you got used to them. We do this to God. Right? The magic of when you were first a believer, if you had that experience, and you learn some word, you do some service, you get familiar with God, and then the pride sneaks in. And all of a sudden, God becomes, well, you're not like a little child with him anymore, as you were at the start. You become familiar. You become familiar with his word. The word doesn't even hardly speak to you anymore. You use it. You use it for yourself, for your pride. We can use God for ourselves. What have we done? We rub the innocence off of everything. All of us do it. (laughs) I find it funny. We all do this. At the front, we're innocent, and then we rub it off. And it becomes, this is what pride is. That becomes mine. See this knowledge of the Bible? Mine. I know more. My walk with God? Mine. That church? Mine. That wife? Mine. That house? Mine. It's all mine. Get your dirty hands off it. Where does this come from? It's exactly our fall. The kicker is we do this to God. In one of his poems, Keats says this, speaking of pride, this is a poem about love. It's actually quite beautiful. I read a few lines out of it. I didn't read it through all the way because it's a thousand lines. But anyway, Keats writes this, the journey homeward to habitual self. What an awesome phrase. He talks about his heart on the journey homeward to habitual self. John Keats. I'm headed home. Where are you going? Oh, going to me. That's my house. How about this? That's my time. How dare you interrupt my time? Is it your time? Really? The day is yours all of a sudden. Seize the day, carpe diem. Is that what God taught? Is that, is that biblical? You say, well, it's Latin. I don't know. The fall is loss of self-control and loss of control of our world. I want you to imagine something. Imagine Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, I'm going to go out into some conjecture land here. So, 
But I'm going to use it as an illustration. I don't know if this is exactly true. But these are always fun. You know, uh, what could Adam do? Now, could Adam take a nap? Could he take a snooze? I have no idea. But would he ever get tired? Probably not. But could he just say, you know what, Eve, I'm going to zonk out for a few minutes. He would have to go from being absolutely wide awake alert to sleeping. Do we do that? Have you ever tried to go to sleep when you really need to go to sleep, but your brain's just spinning? And you're like, go to sleep, go to sleep. <laughs> and it's impossible. I know people who have insomnia. Impossible. They would love to be able to just hit a switch and go to sleep. Can we imagine, because we can't do that, we lose control. Don't go to sleep now, now. We lose control of our ability to control ourselves, right? So we only go to sleep when we zonk, when we're, when we're out. We fall into a stupor. How about eating? No, we, we, lose, we have lost control of our bodies. When our bodies need to eat, hunger. I share this with you all the time, but Chris and I love the survival shows. And on the survival shows, when people get hungry, my Lord, it's amazing to see that all they think about is food. But what about Adam and the woman? They definitely ate. That tree's good for food. But they could eat. They could not eat. Likely. Did they need eat to sustain themselves? They needed to eat from the tree of life. We know that, but... But again, I, I'm, I'm venturing into territory I don't know. What I do know is that Adam had perfect harmony with his wife and in his environment. And he had perfect eminence over all animals, meaning power and control. So his appetites, did he have them? And is it, could it, did it come to a point where it was like, God, I'm starving? Or his sexual appetite for his wife? Did he like, Eve, I have to take you right now? Or did he have control over himself? I tend to think that he did because of the fact that fallen man has no control over himself. The only time we try to control ourselves is when it's socially necessary. But in reality, think of our appetites. Actually, Paul uses this word for those who worship idols. He says they worship their own Appetites. Philippians 3. We worship wealth and power and sex and pleasure and food. We worship ourselves. We have social worship. We want others to worship us. And on and on and on it goes. It's all I. In some combination, all of these things rule every person. We're born into this world with the ability to say, me. And everything flows from it. When they ate, they put I and me in the throne of their souls. Mankind not only lost rulership of the garden, he lost rulership of the animals it contained, he lost rulership of himself. After the fall, the rulership of God was forsaken through disobedience and losing that authority, man lost authority over himself. Even his own body. I can, you can't control what your body does. Uh, you can't, I mean, you know, what I mean by that is you can't control your organs. You can't control when you have to. There's many things that we cannot control. 
So when the serpent told Eve that they could be gods, they really meant that they could take the blessings and the delights that they had in the garden and make them their own. You see, Adam and Eve are blessed in the garden by God. They're blessed by his timing. He didn't, God didn't ask Adam and Eve, what kind of trees do you want me to make for you that you want to eat? What's your favorite flavor of tree? I'll make it for you. God made the garden and set them in it and says, these are your blessings. And they were perfect. They loved God first and foremost. And then the blessings to them flowed from God in God's timing. Does that sound familiar to you? But when they ate, when they believed what the serpent said, that they could be gods, they carved out for themselves a certain place in the garden for themselves, telling God to go away, and that they could actually give themselves their own blessings. Look, if they're gods like God, then they can bless themselves as they choose. Isn't that what the human race does? Isn't that what a lot of Christians do? Do we wait on God's blessings and His timing? Or do we go and grasp it ourselves? To grasp it is to be your own God. To wait for Him, wait on His timing, what He wills, what He wants, what He wants you to do. Does it sound, who in the world did that? Who in, of the members of the human race did everything the Father wanted Him to do, went everywhere the Father, only went where the Father wanted Him to go, only said what the Father wanted Him to say? There was one. And all the human race. Jesus Christ. When we fell, we lost control. And then what did God do? He put laws on us. The laws were to control us. At Sinai, we fast forward far, but they, of course there are laws. There are laws given at, um, to Moses. Sorry, not Moses. Well, definitely to Moses, but I meant Noah. There's, in Genesis 9, there's laws given through Noah to his sons after the flood. God gave laws. So here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. There wasn't a lot of them, but when it came to Moses at Sinai, there were many. God gave these laws and made a covenant with Israel, his chosen people. How did Israel do? Not well. The human spirit, therefore, in us has been changed from being the master of his nature to being a scared, weak lodger in, your, in its own house. The human spirit lives within the human body as a weak, fearful, even prisoner in which it is controlled by impulses, by appetites. And then amazingly, Think about this, you're a weak, like a weak little snail living in your head. I'm talking about fallen man now. Uh, in there, weak, frail, a prisoner, controlled, and then it idolizes itself. It actually self-worships. So hence, pride and ambition the desire to be lovely in your own eyes, to depress and humiliate all your rivals, 
envy, restless search for more and still more, security, because you're afraid, were now the attitudes that became easiest to mankind. That's our fault. Pride, ambition, the desire to be lovely in your own eyes, to depress and humiliate all rivals, envy, a restless search for more, and after that, still more, security, and now that is the attitude that comes easiest to mankind. It's a weak king over a weak body and a bad king. The ruler of the human body is weak and bad. That's true of everybody. And I think, and as I think of this, we must be extremely careful when we're judging others. It's so easy to stand in our little pedestals because we have been born again and saved, but we're still prideful. I can tell you that. Any of us who say we don't have any pride, you're the worst. Um, we still judge others. We put others down. We elevate ourselves. We want to be admired. It still lingers. Now look, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you're forgiven. But when Christ talks about forgiveness, he also talks about forgiving others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So fallen man is not created by God, but we created ourselves into existence. Now, of course, what I mean by that is, you know, God is definitely the creator of all things. I I would never deny that. But he creates all of us. After Adam, all are created secondarily through a mother and a father. God provides all the matter and necessary workings to make that all happen. But in no way does God ever create sin. So in Genesis 5, 3 through 4, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image. And he named him Seth. This is after Cain killed Abel. This is the the one now in the line that's going to lead to Noah. But uh, notice, it's clear. Adam lived 130 years, became the son, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. What does that mean? In the likeness of Adam, in the likeness of a fallen sinner. Well, it's no wonder now, thousands of years later, well, it didn't take very long at all, actually, for the whole thing to become a terrible catastrophe. Was God caught by surprise by all of this? Did God say, you know what, I expected this to go another way? Of course not. There's no contradictions here with omnipotence and omniscience. Of course, he knew. And it's not a look down the corridors of time thing. That, but that, uh, pre, that concedes that there was at least a brief moment that God didn't know what was going to happen. It's not a look down the corridors of time. It's a, and it's a mystery to us. But God has actually determined and planned it all. He's sovereign. 
So, our inherited plague is that we think we can bring blessing, pleasure, and security to ourselves. I, just, I could have made a much longer list there, but I think it makes the point. Um, Adam and the woman were, we can do this. If we eat and we become gods, we can supply what we have enjoyed here in this garden by ourselves. We don't need God to do it. And I'm sure in their minds they said, you know what, we'll pay God a little homage because that's what the human fallen human race does. God has given us a conscience and the human race knows it's only the fool that says there is no God. Human race gives a little homage to God. A little nod. That's good enough. But do not infringe on my life as if it is my own. This is, the, this is the, the key to pride. It is definitely the thing that's slowing every one of us down from spiritual growth. Self. Me. I. Every one of us. We've inherited it. So look, you're a bad king over your own life. What does Jesus Christ become when he comes into the world? What did the Magi ask when they got to Jerusalem? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Born king, son of David, son of God, son of man. Ruler, husband, provider, creator. And there's only one way that he can actually make it work for us. So, notice what he says. Christ came to show us a different way. Here's us. We want to glorify ourselves. Here's what Christ shows us. John 8, 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. If any other human being says that, we say, well, no, duh. Obviously. But when the Son of God says that, it should raise an eyebrow that what in the world... And this is another thing I, I mean about all of us. If Say you're familiar with certain verses and you come to them again and you're like, oh, I know that. Many of us have rubbed off the Bible, the innocence that we once had with it, because we've come to know it. And I spend day in and day out looking at it, and I don't want that to happen to me. I've seen it happen in my life. But I'm glad that I've noticed it. You know, I want to like get my work done or something like that. Read. Read like it's given to you. Particularly to you. Those letters are written just for you. By your Father. The Son of God says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. You're God. But what is he doing here? He's saving the human race. He is showing us the path of life. So, I think you're in the New Testament. So let's go there first. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 20.
Now, this is truly um, uh, Paul's writing about the gospel, the good news concerning Christ, which he started in verse 1. Um, but here in verse 20, now he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits from the, of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. As soon as they ate, you eat that and you will die. Don't, if they ate it, don't, as we know. I'm not spoiling anything for you, Rick. Eat that and you will die. And then you became rotten, prideful, I, me-centered, self-love, self-worship, accumulate, gain for myself all things, all people. And then Christ died for us. So as we died, he died, being judged for the sins of the world. And so, by, since by, for since by a man, in verse 21, death, which is Adam, uh, by a man came death, which is Adam, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. How marvelous. And so, being in Christ, now you're alive. And now as we look forward to the rest of the Gospel of Matthew... And as we look into the rest of the New Testament, we find out what this life is. Matthew's going to lead us after his uh, introduction, or really origin, of the Messiah, which is chapters 1 through 4, is Matthew's first long discourse, which is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is about this life. If you are alive, what does this mean? I mean, obviously, it's more than being physically alive because, as we've seen, you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. So what he means here is that I'm spiritually alive. So what does that mean for me? And Matthew's going to point that out in a way that has rocked the world in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' first discourse. So as I said... The, la- the proudest person is the one who thinks he is not. You and I must know our pride. First off, know you have it. We all have it. So that's easy. It's easy to say. Do I have it? Yes. <laughs> if, if you hold a mirror under your nose and it fogs up a little bit, you have pride. Now, do battle with your pride. I I buffet my body. I make it my slave. Sound familiar? Do battle with your pride. Know this. Your pride will always lurk while you are in this life. Always just under the surface. Just under a few inches of topsoil. Always ready to come up. You must do battle with it. And you must be alert. It will tempt you every day. Every day it will fool you. Likely. Fix your eyes on your Lord. You will find yourself wanting to or repenting, uh, wanting to be proud or repenting from being proud or bringing others to idolize yourself, paying homage to yourself. None of these things about self or want for self or grasping for self 
is ever justified. We must know that. That's why we say, well, that's a sin. Confess it. Confess everyone that you see. Know that you're forgiven. And know that pride is a killer of the spiritual life. It truly is. I mean, if pride has caused the downfall of this very world, is, it, is the pride in you of a different kind? Is it maybe a little bit better than the pride that's in, say, a tyrant or a murderer? Or someone who is, you know, who hates the Lord and does nothing but evil? Is your pride of a better quality? It's absolutely not. But shouldn't that awaken us and open our eyes to the fact that the very pride that is in you is the very pride that is the downfall of the world. Do battle against it. And now, oh, we didn't get to that. What has God given you to overcome your pride and live as one who is in right relation to him again? And if you're a born-again believer, you are. You're in right relation to God forever. You're a son. You're a prince or a princess of heaven. You, as one who has believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, is made regenerated and reconciled to God. What has God given you to overcome your pride? And of course, I know you know that, but I, I just put it out there because I want us to think about it. In relation to pride. Now, Sunday we head to John the Baptist, right? So I don't know if, how much about pride we'll be talking about in the near future. But this is a big one. You know, maybe I, that's a good thing. Maybe God's telling me to repeat it a bit before we, we continue to go on. But do battle with your pride. It's so subtle. It can lurk under the surface. It can be running you and you won't even know it. And, and, and it does great damage. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for...